CD2 Magic isn't like maths. Like the disc world itself, it follows common sense rather than logic. And nor is it like cookery. A cake's a cake. Mix the ingredients upright and cook them in the right temperature, and a cake happens. No casserole requires moonbeams. No souffle ever demanded to be mixed by a virgin. Nevertheless, those afflicted with an inquiring turn of mind have often wondered whether there are rules of magic. There are more than 500 known spells to secure the love of another person, and they range from messing around with fern seed at midnight to doing something rather unpleasant with a rhino horn at an unspecified time, but probably not just after a meal. Was it possible, the inquiring minds inquired, that an analysis of all these spells might reveal some small, powerful common denominator, some meta-spell, some simple little equation which would achieve the required end far more simply and incidentally come as a great relief to all rhinos. To answer such questions, Hex had been built, although Ponder Stibbons was a bit uneasy about the word built in this context. He and a few keen students had put it together, certainly, but, well, sometimes he thought bits of it, strange though this sounded, just turned up. For example, he was pretty sure no one had designed the phase of the moon generator. But there it was, clearly a part of the whole thing. They had built the unreal time clock, although no one seemed to have a very clear idea how it worked. What he suspected they were dealing with was a specialised case of formative causation, always a risk in a place like Unseen University, where reality was stretched so thin and therefore blown by so many strange breezes. If that was so, then they weren't exactly designing something, they were just putting physical clothes on an idea that was already there, a shadow of something that had been waiting to exist. He'd explained at length to the faculty that Hex didn't think. It was obvious that it couldn't think. Part of it was clockwork. A lot of it was a giant ant farm. The interface where the ants rode up and down on a little paternoster that turned a significant cogwheel was a little masterpiece, he thought. And the intricately controlled rushing of the ants through their maze of glass tubing was the most important part of the whole thing. But a lot of it had just accumulated, like the aquarium and wind chimes which now seemed to be essential. A mouse had built a nest in the middle of it all and had been allowed to become a fixture since the thing stopped working when they took it out. Nothing in that assemblage could possibly think, except in fairly limited ways about cheese or sugar. Nevertheless, in the middle of the night, when Hex was working hard and the tubes rustled with the toiling ants and things suddenly went clonk for no obvious reason, and the aquarium had been lowered on its davits so that the operator would have something to watch during the long hours, nevertheless, then a man might begin to speculate about what a brain was and what thought was and whether things that weren't alive could think and whether a brain was just a more complicated version of Hex. Or, around 4am, when bits of the clockwork reversed direction suddenly and the mice squeaked, a less complicated version of Hex and wonder if the whole produced something not apparently inherent in the parts. In short, Ponder was just a little bit worried. He sat down at the keyboard. It was almost as big as the rest of Hex, to allow for the necessary levers and armatures. The various keys allowed little boards with holes in them to drop briefly into slots, forcing the ants into new paths. It took him some time to compose the problem, but at last he braced one foot on the structure and tugged on the enter lever. The ants scurried on new paths. The clockwork started to move, a small mechanism which Ponder would be prepared to swear had not been there yesterday, but which looked like a device for measuring wind speed, began to spin. After several minutes, a number of blocks with occult symbols on them dropped into the output hopper. Thank you, said Ponder, and then felt extremely silly for saying so. There was a tension to the thing, a feeling of mute straining and striving towards some distant and incomprehensible goal. As a wizard, it was something that Ponder had only before encountered in acorns, a tiny, soundless voice which said, Yes, I am but a small, green, simple object, but I dream about forests. Only the other day, Adrian Turnipseed had typed in Y to see what happened. Some of the students had forecast that Hex would go mad trying to work it out. Ponder had expected Hex to produce the message, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. 
which it did with depressing frequency. Instead, after some unusual activity among the ants, it had laboriously produced because. With everyone else watching from behind a hastily overturned desk, Turnipseed had volunteered, Why anything? The reply had finally turned up, Because everything, question mark, question mark, question mark, eternal domain, error, plus, 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 redo from start, plus, plus, plus. No one knew who redo from start was, or why he was sending messages. But there were no more funny questions. No one wanted to risk getting answers. It was shortly afterwards that the thing like a broken umbrella with herrings on it appeared just behind the thing like a beach ball that went pop every 14 minutes. Of course, books of magic developed a certain personality, derived from all that power in their pages. That's why it was unwise to go into the library without a stick. And now Ponder had helped build an engine for studying magic. Wizards had always known that the act of observation changed the thing that was observed, and sometimes forgot that it also changed the observer too. He was just beginning to suspect that Hex was redesigning itself. And he'd just said, thank you, to a thing that looked like it had been made by a glassblower with hiccups. He looked at the spell it had produced, hastily wrote it down and hurried out. Hex clicked to itself in the now empty room. The thing that went parp went parp. The unreal time clock ticked sideways. There was a rattle in the output slot. Don't mention it, plus plus, question mark, question mark, plus plus. Out of cheese, error. Redo from start. It was five minutes later. Fascinating, said Ridcully. Sapient pear wood, eh? He knelt down in an effort to see underneath. The luggage backed away. It was used to terror, horror, fear and panic. It had seldom encountered interest before. The Arch-Chancellor stood up and brushed himself off. Ah, he said, as a dwarfish figure approached. Here's the gardener with the stepladder. The dean's in the chandelier, Modo. I'm quite happy up here, I assure you, said a voice from the ceiling regions. Perhaps someone would be kind enough to pass me up my tea. And I, I was amazed the senior wrangler could ever fit into the sideboard, said Ridcully. It's amazing how a man can, can fold himself up. I was just, uh, just inspecting the silverware, said a voice from the depths of a drawer. The luggage opened its lid. Several wizards jumped back hurriedly. Ridcully examined the shark teeth stuck here and there in the woodwork. Kills sharks, you say, he said. Oh, yes, said Rincewind. Sometimes it drags them ashore and jumps up and down on them. Ridcully was impressed. Sapient pearwood was very rare in the countries between the Ramtops and the Circle Sea. There were probably no living trees left. A few wizards were lucky enough to have inherited staffs made out of it. Economy of emotion was one of Ridcully's strong points. He had been impressed. He had been fascinated. He'd even, when the thing had landed in the middle of the wizards and caused the Dean's remarkable feat of vertical acceleration, been slightly aghast. But he hadn't been frightened because he didn't have the imagination. My goodness, said a wizard. The Arch-Chancellor looked up. Yes, Bursa? It's this book the Dean loaned me, Mustrum. It's about apes. Really? It's most fascinating, said the bursar, who was on the median part of his mental cycle and therefore vaguely on the right planet, even if insulated from it by five miles of mental cotton wool. It's true what he said. It says here that an adult male orangutan doesn't grow the large flamboyant cheek pads unless he's the dominant male. Uh, and, and, and that's um, fascinating, is it? Well, yes, because he hasn't got them. I wonder why. He certainly dominates the library, I should think. Ah, yes, said the senior wrangler, but he knows he's a wizard too, so it's not as though he dominates the whole university. One by one, as the thought sank in, they grinned at the Arch-Chancellor. Uh, don't you look at my cheeks like that, said Ridcully. I don't dominate anybody. I was only... So you can all shut up there, or there will be big trouble. You should read it, said the bursar, still happily living in the Valley of the Dried Frogs. It's amazing what you can learn. What? 
Like how to show your bottom to people, said the dean from on high. No, dean, that's baboons, said the senior wrangler. I beg your pardon, I think you'll find it's gibbons, said the chair of indefinite studies. No, gibbons are the ones that hoot. It's baboons if you want to see bottoms. Well, he, he's never shown me one, said the arch-chancellor. Huh, well, he wouldn't, would he? said a voice from the chandelier. Not with you being dominant male and everything. Two chairs, you come down here this minute. I seem to be entangled, Mustrum. A candle is giving me some difficulty. Huh? Rincewind shook his head and wandered away. There had certainly been some changes around the place since he had been here, and if it came to it, he didn't know how long ago that had been. He'd never asked for an exciting life. What he really liked, what he sought on every occasion, was boredom. The trouble was that boredom tended to explode in your face. Just when he thought he'd found it, he'd be suddenly involved in what he supposed other people, thoughtless, feckless people, would call an adventure and he'd be forced to visit many strange lands and meet exotic and colourful people, although not for very long, because usually he'd be running. He'd seen the creation of the universe, although not from a good seat, and he had visited hell and the afterlife. He'd been captured, imprisoned, rescued, lost and marooned. Sometimes it had all happened on the same day. Adventure. People talked about the idea as if it was something worthwhile, rather than a mess of bad food, no sleep, and strange people inexplicably trying to stick pointed objects in bits of you. The root problem, Rincewind had come to believe, was that he suffered from preemptive karma. If it even looked as though something nice was going to happen to him in the near future, something bad would happen right now, and it went on happening to him right through the part where the good stuff should be happening so that he never actually experienced it. It was as if he always got the indigestion before the meal and felt so dreadful that he never actually managed to eat anything. Somewhere in the world, he reasoned, there was someone who was on the other end of the seesaw, a kind of mirror rincewind whose life was a succession of wonderful events. He hoped to meet him one day, preferably while holding some sort of weapon. Now people were babbling about sending him to the counterweight continent. He'd heard that life was dull there, and Rincewind really craved dullness. He'd really liked that island. He'd enjoyed coconut surprise. You cracked it open, and hey, there was coconut inside. That was the kind of surprise he liked. He pushed open a door. The place inside had been his room. It was a mess. There was a large and battered wardrobe, and that was about the end of it as far as proper furniture was concerned, unless you wanted to broaden the term to include a wicker chair with no bottom, and three legs, and a mattress so full of the life that inhabits mattresses that it occasionally moved sluggishly around the floor, bumping into things. The rest of the room was a litter of objects dragged in from the street, old crates, bits of planking, sacks. Rincewind felt a lump in his throat. They'd left his room just as it was. He opened the wardrobe and rummaged through the moth-haunted darkness within until his questing hand located an ear, which was attached to a dwarf. Ow! What, said Rincewind, are you doing in my wardrobe? Wardrobe? Uh, uh, isn't this the magic kingdom of scrumptiousness? said the dwarf, trying not to look guilty. No, and these shoes you're holding aren't the golden jewels of the Queen of the Fairies, said Rincewind, snatching them out of the thief's hands. And this isn't the Wand of Invisibility, and these aren't giant Grumblenose's wonderful socks. But this is my boot. Ow! And stay out. The dwarf ran for the door and paused, but only briefly to shout, I've got a Thieves' Guild card, and you shouldn't hit dwarfs. That's speciesism. Good, said Rincewind, retrieving items of clothing. He found another robe and put it on. Here and there, moths had worked their lace-making skills, and most of the red colour had faded to shades of orange and brown, but to his relief, it was a proper wizard's robe. It's hard to be an impressive magic user with bare knees. Gentle footsteps pattered to a halt behind him. He turned. Open. The luggage obediently cracked its lid. In theory, it should have been full of shark. In fact, it was half full of coconuts. Rincewind turfed them out onto the floor and put the rest of the clothes inside. Shut. The lid slammed. Now go to the kitchen and get some potatoes. 
The chest did a complicated many-legged-about turn and trotted away. Rincewind followed it out and headed towards the Arch-Chancellor's study. Behind him he could hear the wizards still arguing. He'd become familiar with the study through long years at Unseen. Generally, he was there to answer quite difficult questions like, how can anyone get a negative mark in basic fire-making? He'd spent a lot of time staring at the fixtures while people harangued him. There had been changes here, too. Gone were the alembics and bubbling flagons that were the traditional props of wizardry. Ridcully's study was dominated by a full-size snooker table on which he'd piled papers until there was no room for any more and no sign of green felt. Ridcully assumed that anything people had time to write down couldn't be important. The stuffed heads of a number of surprised animals stared down at him. From the antlers of one stag hung a pair of corroded boots Ridcully had won as a rowing brown for the university in his youth. Except during extreme flood conditions, it is extremely difficult to make much progress on the Ark, and the university rowing teams compete by running over the surface of the river. This is generally quite safe, provided they don't stand in one place for very long, and of course, it eats the soles off their boots. There was a large model of the Discworld on four wooden elephants in a corner of the room. Rincewind was familiar with it. Every student was. The counterweight continent was a blob. It was a shaped blob, a not very inviting comma shape. Sailors had brought back news of it. They'd said at one point it broke into a pattern of large islands stretching around the disk to the even more mysterious islands of Bang Bang Duk and the completely mythical continent known only on the charts as XXXX. Not that many sailors went near the counterweight continent. The Agatean Empire was known to ignore a very small amount of smuggling. Presumably Ankh Morpork had some things it wanted. But there was nothing official. A boat might come back loaded with silk and rare wood, and these days a few wild-eyed refugees. Or it might come back with its captain riveted upside down to the mast. Or it might not come back. Rincewind had been very nearly everywhere, but the counterweight continent was an unknown land, or terror incognita. He couldn't imagine why they'd want any kind of wizard. Rincewind sighed. He knew what he should do now. He shouldn't even wait for the return of the luggage from its argosy to the kitchens, from which the sound of yelling and something being repeatedly hit with a large brass preserving pan suggested it was going about its business. He should just gather up what he could carry and get the hell out of here. He... Ah, Rincewind, said the Arch-Chancellor, who had an amazingly silent walk for such a large man. Keen to leave, I see. Uh, yes, indeed, said Rincewind. Oh, oh, yes, very much so. The Red Army met in secret session. They opened their meeting by singing revolutionary songs, and since disobedience to authority did not come easily to the Agatean character, these had titles like Steady Progress and Limited Disobedience While Retaining Well-Formulated Good Manners. Then it was time for the news. The Great Wizard will come. We sent the message at great personal risk. How will we know when he arrives? If he's the great wizard, we'll hear about it, and then... Gently push over the forces of repression, they chorused. Two Fireherb looked at the rest of the cadre. Exactly, he said. And then, comrades, we must strike at the very heart of the rottenness. We must storm the Winter Palace. There was silence from the cadre. Then someone said... Excuse me, Two Fire Herb, but it is June. Then we can storm the Summer Palace. A similar session, although without singing and with rather older participants, was taking place in Unseen University, although one member of the College Council had refused to come down from the chandelier. This was of some considerable annoyance to the librarian, who usually occupied it. All right, if you don't trust my calculations, then what are the alternatives? said Ponder Stibbons hotly. Boat, said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. They sink, said Rincewind. It'd get you there in no time at all, said Senior Wrangler. We're wizards after all. We could give you your own bag of wind. Ah, forward the Dean, said Ridcully pleasantly. I heard that, said a voice from above. Overland, said the lecturer in recent runes, up and around the hub. 
It's ice practically all the way. No, said Rincewind. But you don't sink on ice. No, you tip up and then you sink, and then the ice hits you on the head. Also, killer whales and great big seals with teeth like this. This is off the wall, I know, said the bursar brightly. What is, said the lecturer in recent runes, a hook for hanging pictures on. There was a brief embarrassed silence. Good Lord, is that the um, time already, said the Arch-Chancellor, taking out his watch. Ah, so it is. The bottle's in your left-hand pocket, old chap. Take three. No, magic is the only way, said Ponder Stibbons. It worked when we brought him here, didn't it? Oh, yes, said Rincewind. Just send me thousands of miles with my pants on fire and you don't even know where I'll land. Oh, yes, that's ideal, that is. Good, said Ridcully, a man impervious to sarcasm. It's a big continent. We can't possibly miss it, even with Mr. Stibbons' precise calculations. Supposing I end up crushed in the middle of a mountain, said Rincewind. Can't. The rock'll be brought back here when we do the spell, said Ponder, who hadn't liked the crack about his maths. So I'll still be in the middle of a mountain, but in a me-shaped hole, said Rincewind. Oh, good. Instant fossil. Don't worry, said Ridcully. It's just a matter of um, thingamy. You know, all that stuff about three right angles making a triangle. Is it possible you're talking about geometry, said Rincewind, eyeing the door? That kind of thing, mm, yes. And you'll have your amazing luggage item. Why, it'll practically be a holiday. It'll be easy. They probably just want to, to ask you something or something. And I hear you've got a talent for languages, so no problem there. This at least was true. Rincewind could scream for mercy in 19 languages and just scream in another 44. This is important. Inexperienced travellers might think that Arg is universal, but in Betrobi it means highly enjoyable, and in Hawanderland it means variously I would like to eat your foot, your wife is a big hippo, and hello thinks Mr. Purple Cat. One particular tribe has a fearsome reputation for cruelty merely because prisoners appear to them to be shouting, Quick! Extra boiling oil! You'll probably be away for a couple of hours at the most. Why do you keep saying, huh, under your breath? Was I? And everyone will be so grateful if you come back. Rincewind looked around, and in one case up, at the council. How will I get back, he said. Same way you went. We'll find you and, 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 and bring you out, with surgical precision. Rincewind groaned. He knew what surgical precision meant in Ark Morpork. It meant to within an inch or two, accompanied by a lot of screaming, and then they pour hot tar on you just where your leg was. But if you put aside for the moment the certainty that something would definitely go horribly wrong, it looked foolproof. The trouble was that wizards were such ingenious fools. And then I can have my old job back? Oh, certainly. And officially call myself a wizard? Of course, with any kind of spelling. And never have to go anywhere again as long as I live? Fine. We'll actually ban you leaving the premises, if you like. And a new hat? What? A, a new hat? This one's practically headed. Two new hats. Sequins? Of course. And those, you know, like glass chandelier things. Lots of those all around the brim, as many as you like. And we'll spell wizard with three Zs. Rincewind sighed. Oh, all right, I'll do it. Ponder's genius found itself rather cramped when it came to explaining things to people, and this was the case now, as the wizards foregathered to kick some serious magic. Ah, yes, but you see, Arch-Chancellor, he's being sent to the opposite side of the disc, you see. Ridcully sighed. It's um, spinning, isn't it? he said. We're all going the same way, it stands to reason. If people are going the other way just because they're on the counterweight continent, we'd crash into them once a year.
I mean, twice. Yes, yes, they're spinning the same way, of course, but the direction of motion is entirely opposite. I mean, said Ponder, lapsing into logic, you have to think about vectors. You, you, you have to ask yourself, what direction would they go in if the disc wasn't here? The wizards stared at him. Uh, down? said Ridcully. No, 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 Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder. They wouldn't go down because there'd be nothing to pull them down. They... You don't need anything to pull you down. Down's where you go if there's nothing to keep you up. They'd keep on going in the same direction, shouted Ponder. Right. Ah, round and round, said Ridcully. He rubbed his hands together. You've got to maintain a grip if you want to be a wizard, lad. Ha! How are we doing, runes? I, um, I, I can make out something, said the lecturer in recent runes, squinting into the crystal ball. There's a lot of interference. The wizards gathered round. White specks filled the crystal. There were vague shapes just visible in the mush. Some of them could be human. "'Very peaceful place, the Agatean Empire,' said Ridcully. "'Very tranquil, very cultured. "'They set great store in politeness.' "'Well, yes,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'I heard it was because people who aren't tranquil and quiet "'get serious bits cut off, don't they? "'I heard the Empire has a tyrannical and repressive government.' "'What form of government is that?' said Ponder Stibbons. A tautology, said the dean from above. How um, serious are these bits, said Rincewind. They ignored him. I heard that gold's very common there, said the dean. Lying around like dirt, they say. Rincewind could bring back a sackful. I'd um, rather bring back all my bits, said Rincewind. After all, he thought... I'm only the one who's going to end up in the middle of it all, so please don't anyone bother to listen to me. Can't you stop it blurring like that, said the Arch-Chancellor? I'm sorry, Arch-Chancellor. These bits. Um, big bits or small bits, said Rincewind, unheard. Just find us an open space with something about the right size and weight. It's very hard to... Very serious bits, are we in arms and legs territory here? They say it's very, very boring there. Their biggest curse is, may you live in interesting times, apparently. There's a thing. It's very blurry. It looks like a wheelbarrow or something. Quite small, I think. Or toes or ears or that kind of thing. Good. Let's get... Started, said Ridcully. Uh, I think it'll help if he's a bit heavier than the thing we move here, said Ponder. He won't arrive at any speed then, I think. Yes, yes, thank you very much, Mr. Stibbons. Now, get in the circle and let us see that staff crackle. There's a good chap. Um, fingernails? Hair? Rincewind tugged at the robe of Ponder Stibbons, who seemed slightly more sensible than the others. Um... What's my next move here? he said. Um, about six thousand miles, I hope, said Ponder Stibbons. But, I mean, have you got any advice? Ponder wondered how to put things. He thought, I've done my best with Hex, but the actual business will be undertaken by a bunch of wizards whose idea of experimental procedure is to throw it and then sit down and argue about where it's going to land. We want to change your position with that of something 6,000 miles away, which, whatever the Arch-Chancellor says, is heading through space in a quite different direction. The key is precision. It's no good using any old travelling spell. It had come apart halfway, and so would you. I'm pretty sure that we'll get you there in one, or at worst, two pieces. But we've no way of knowing the weight of the things we change you with. If it's pretty much the same weight as you, then it might just all work out, provided you don't mind jogging on the spot when you land. But if it's a lot heavier than you, then my suspicion is that you'll appear over there travelling at the sort of speed normally only experienced by sleepwalkers in cliff-top villages in a very terminal way. Um, he said, be afraid. Be very afraid. Oh, that, 
said Rincewind. No problem there. I'm good at that. We're going to try to put you in the centre of the continent where Hung Hung is believed to be, said Ponder. The capital city? Yes, uh, Ponder felt guilty. Look, whatever happens, I'm sure you'll get there alive, which is more than would happen if it had just been left to them, and I'm pretty sure you'll end up on the right continent. Oh, good. Uh, come along, Mr. Stibbons, we're all agog to hear how you wish us to do this, said Ridcully. Ah, uh, yes, right. Now, you, Mr. Rincewind, if you will go and stand in the centre of the octagon, thank you. Mm, you see, gentlemen, what has always been the problem with teleporting over large distances is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Named after the wizard Sangrit Heisenberg, and not after the more famous Heisenberg, who is renowned for inventing what is possibly the finest lager in the world. Since the object teleported, that's from tele I see and porte to go, the whole meaning I see it's gone, uh, the object teleported, uh, no matter how large, is reduced to a thaumic particle and is therefore the subject of an eventually fatal dichotomy. It can either know what it is or where it is going, but not both. Uh, the tension this creates in the morphic field eventually causes it to disintegrate, leaving the subject as a randomly shaped object, um, smeared across up to eleven dimensions. Uh, but I'm sure you all know this. There was a snore from the chair of indefinite studies, who was suddenly giving a lecture in room 3B. Rincewind was grinning. At least his mouth had gaped open and his teeth were showing. Uh, excuse me, he said. I don't remember anyone saying anything about being smeared. Of course, said Ponder, the subject would not, uh, actually experience this. Oh, as far as we know. What? Although it is theoretically possible for the psyche to remain present. Eh? To briefly witness the explosive discorporation. Eh? Now, we're all familiar with the use of the spell as a fulcrum, uh, so that one does not actually move one object, but simply exchanges the position of two objects of similar mass. It is my aim tonight uh, to demonstrate that by imparting exactly the right amount of spin and the maximum velocity to the object, me, from the very first moment it is virtually certain, virtually, to hold together for distances of up to uh, 6,000 miles. Up to, give or take 10%. Give or take? So, if you'd excuse me, Dean, I'd be obliged if you'd stop dripping wax. If you'd all take up the positions I've marked on the floor... Rincewind looked longingly towards the door. It was no distance at all for the experienced coward. He could just trot out of here and they could... They could... What could they do? They could just take his hat away and stop him ever coming back to the university. Now he came to think about it, they probably wouldn't be bothered about the nailing bit if he was too much bother to find. And that was the problem. He wouldn't be dead, but then neither would he be a wizard. And, he thought, as the wizards shuffled into position and screwed down the knobs on the end of their staffs, not being able to think of himself as a wizard was being dead. The spell began. Rincewind the shoemaker. Rincewind the beggar. Rincewind the thief. Just about everything apart from Rincewind the corpse demanded training or aptitudes that he didn't have. He was no good at anything else. Wizardry was the only refuge. Well, actually, he was no good at wizardry either, but at least he was definitively no good at it. He'd always felt he had a right to exist as a wizard, in the same way that you couldn't do proper maths without the number zero, which wasn't a number at all, but if it went away, would have a lot larger numbers looking bloody stupid. It was a vaguely noble thought that kept him warm during those occasional 3 a.m. awakenings when he had evaluated his life and found it weighed a little less than a puff of warm hydrogen. And he probably had saved the world a few times, but it had generally happened accidentally while he was trying to do something else. So you almost certainly didn't actually get any karmic points for that. It probably only counted if you started out by thinking in a loud way, by criminy, it's jolly well time to save the world, and no two ways about it, instead of, oh shit, this time I'm really going to die. The spell continued. It didn't seem to be going very well. Oh, come on, you chaps, 
said Ridcully. Put some backbone into it. Are you sure it's just something small, said the Dean, who'd broken into a sweat. Looks like a, a wheelbarrow, muttered the lecturer in recent runes. The knob on the end of Ridcully's staff began to smoke. Will you look at the magic I'm using, he said. What's going on, Mr Stibbons? Uh, of course, size isn't the same as mass. And then in the same way that it can take considerable effort to push at a sticking door and no effort at all to fall full length into the room beyond, the spell caught. Ponder hoped afterwards that what he saw was an optical illusion. Certainly no one normally was suddenly stretched to about twelve feet tall and then snapped back into shape so fast that their boots ended up under their chin. There was a brief cry of, which ended abruptly, and this was probably just as well. The first thing that struck Rincewind when he appeared on the counterweight continent was a cold sensation. The next things, in order of the direction of travel, were a surprised man with a sword, another man with a sword, a third man who dropped his sword and was trying to run away, two other men who were less alert and didn't even see him, a small tree, about fifty yards of stunted undergrowth, a snowdrift, a bigger snowdrift, a few rocks, and one more and quite final snowdrift. Ridcully looked at Ponder Stibbons. Well, he's gone, he said. But aren't we supposed to get something back? I'm not sure the transit time is instantaneous, said Ponder. You've got to allow for uh, zooming through the occult dimensions time? Something like that. According to Hex, we might have to wait several... Something appeared in the octagon with a pop, exactly where Rincewind had been, and rolled a few inches. It did at least have four small wheels, such as might carry a cart, but these weren't workmanlike wheels, they were mere discs, such as might be put on something heavy for those rare occasions it needs to be moved. Above the wheels, things became rather more interesting. There was a large round cylinder, like a barrel on its side. A considerable amount of effort had been put into its construction. Large amounts of brass had gone into making it look like a very large, fat dog with its mouth open. A minor feature was a length of string which was smoking and hissing because it was on fire. It didn't do anything dangerous, it just sat there while the smouldering string slowly got shorter. The wizards gathered round. Looks pretty heavy, said the lecturer in recent runes. A statue of a dog with a big mouth, said the chair of indefinite studies. That's rather dull. Bit of a, a, a lap dog, too, said Ridcully. Lot of work gone into it, said the dean. Can't imagine why anyone would want to set fire to it. Ridcully poked his head into the wide tube. Some kind of big round ball in here, he said, his voice echoing a little. Someone pass me a staff or something. I'll see if I can wiggle it out. Ponder was staring at the fizzing string. Ah, uh, he said, I, uh... I think we should all just step away from it, Arch-Chancellor. Uh, we should all just step back. Yes, um, step back a little way. Uh, oh, yes, really. So much for research, said Ridcully. You don't mind messing around with cogwheels and ants, but when it comes to really trying to find out how things work and getting your hands dirty, said the lecturer in recent runes. Yes, getting your hands dirty. You come over all shy. It's not that arch-chancellor, said Ponder, but I believe it may be dangerous. I think I'm working it loose, said Ridcully, poking the depths of the tube. Come on, you fellows, tip the thing up a bit. Ponder took a few more steps back. Uh, I really don't think, he began. Don't think, eh? Call yourself a wizard and you don't think. Blast, I've got my staff wedged now. That's what comes of... "'Listening to you when I should have been paying attention, Mr. Stibbons.' "'Ponder heard a scuffling behind him. "'The librarian, with an animal's instinct for danger "'and a human's instinct for trouble, "'had upturned a table and was peering over the top of it "'with a small cauldron on his head, "'the handle under one of his chins like a strap. "'Arch-Chancellor, I, I really do think.' "'Oh, you think, do you? "'Did anyone tell you it's your job to think?' "'Ow!' got my fingers now, thanks to you. It needed all Ponder's courage to say, 
I think it might perhaps be some kind of firework, sir. The wizards turned their attention to the fizzing string. What? Coloured lights and stars? That sort of thing? said Ridcully. Possibly, sir. Must be planning a hell of a display. Apparently they're very keen on firecrackers over in the Empire. Ridcully spoke in the tone of voice of a man over whom the thought is slowly stealing that he just might have done something very silly. Would you like me to extinguish the string, sir? said Ponder. Uh, yes, dear boy, why not? Good idea. Um, good thinking, that man. Ponder stepped forward and pinched the string. I do hope we haven't ruined something, he said. Rincewind opened his eyes. This was not cool sheets. It was white and it was cold, but it lacked basic sheetness. It made up for this by having vast amounts of snowosity and a groove. A long groove. Let's see now. He could remember the sensation of movement, and he vaguely remembered something small but incredibly heavy-looking, roaring past in the opposite direction. And then he was here, moving so fast that his feet left this... groove. Yes, groove, he thought, in the easy-going way of the mildly concussed. With people lying around it, groaning. But they looked like the people who, once they'd stopped crawling around groaning, were going to draw the swords they had about their persons and pay detailed attention to serious bits. He stood up a little shakily. There didn't seem to be anywhere to run to. There was just this wide, snowy waste with a border of mountains. The soldiers were definitely looking a lot more conscious. Rincewind sighed. A few hours ago, he'd been sitting on a warm beach with young women about to offer him potatoes. There was still a certain amount of confusion on this point. And here he was on a windswept, chilly plain with some large men about to offer him violence. The soles of his shoes, he noticed, were steaming. And then someone said, Hey, are you? You're not, are you? Are you? What's the name? Rincewind, isn't it? Rincewind turned. There was a very old man behind him. Despite the bitter wind, he was wearing nothing except a leather loincloth and a grubby beard so long that the loincloth wasn't really necessary, at least from the point of view of decency. His legs were blue from the cold and his nose was red from the wind, giving him an overall quite patriotic look if you were from the right country. He had a patch over one eye, but rather more notable than that were his teeth. They glittered. Don't stand there gawping like a big gawper. Get these damn things off me. There were heavy shackles around his ankles and wrists. A chain led to a group of more or less similarly clad men who were huddling in a crowd and watching Rincewind in terror. Hey, they think you're some kind of demon, cackled the old man. But I knows a wizard when I sees one. That bastard over there's got the keys. Go and give him a good kicking. Rincewind took a few hesitant steps towards the recumbent guard and snatched at his belt. Right, said the old man. Now chuck him over here and then get out of the way. Why? Because you don't want to get blood all over you. But you haven't got a weapon, and there's one of you, and they've got big swords, and there's five of them. I know, said the old man, wrapping the chain around one of his fists in a businesslike manner. It's unfair, but I can't wait around all day, he grinned. Gems glittered in the morning light. Every tooth in the man's head was a diamond. And Rincewind knew of only one man who had the nerve to wear troll teeth. Here? Cohen the Barbarian? Shush! Incognita! Now, get out the way, I said. The teeth flashed at the guards who were now vertical. Come on, boys, there's five of you after all, and I'm an old man. Mumble, mumble, ooh, me leg, etc. To their credit, the guards hesitated. It was probably not to judge from their faces because there's something reprehensible about five large, heavily beweaponed men attacking a frail old man. It might have been because there's something odd about a frail old man who keeps on grinning in the face of obvious oblivion. Oh, come on, said Cohen. The men edged closer, each waiting for one of the others to make the first move. Cohen took a few steps forward, waving his arms wearily. Oh, no, he said. It makes me ashamed. Honestly, it does. This is not how you attack someone, all milling around like a lot of millers. When you attack someone, the important thing to remember is the element of surprise. And ten seconds later, he turned to Rincewind. 
All right, Mr. Wizard, you can open your eyes now. One guard was upside down in a tree, one was a pair of feet sticking out of a snowdrift, two were slumped against the rocks, and one was generally around the place, here and there, certainly hanging out. Cohen sucked his wrist thoughtfully. I reckon that last one came within an inch of getting me, he said. I must be getting old. Why are you here? Rincewind paused. One packet of curiosity overtook the first one. How old are you exactly? Is this still the century of the fruit bat? Yes. Oh, I don't know. Ninety? Could be ninety. Maybe ninety-five. Cohen fished the keys out of the snow and ambled over to the group of men who were cowering even more. He unlocked the first set of manacles and handed the shocked prisoner the keys. Bagger off the lot of you, he said, not unkindly, and don't get caught again. He strolled back to Rincewind. What brings you to this dump, then? Well, interesting, said Cohen, and that was that. But can't stay chatting all day, got work to do. You coming, nor what? What? Please yourself. Cohen tied the chain around his waist as a makeshift belt and wedged a couple of swords in it. Incidentally, he said, what did you do with the barking dog? What dog? I expect it doesn't matter. Rincewind scuttled after the retreating figure. It wasn't that he felt safe when Cohen the Barbarian was round. No one was safe when Cohen the Barbarian was around. Something seemed to have gone wrong with the ageing process there. Cohen had always been a barbarian hero because barbaric heroing was all he knew how to do. And while he got old, he seemed to get harder, like oak. But he was a known figure, and therefore comforting. He just wasn't in the right place. No future in it, back round the ram tops, said Cohen, as they trudged through the snow. Fences and farms, fences and farms everywhere. You kill a dragon these days, people complain. You know what? You know what happened? No, what happened? Man came up to me, said my teeth were offensive to trolls. What about that, eh? Well, they are made of... I said they never complained to me. Um, did you give them a chart? I said, I see a troll up in the mountains with a necklace of human skulls. I say, good luck to him. Silicon Anti-Defamation League, my bottom. It's the same all over. So I thought I'd try my luck the other side of the ice cap. Isn't it dangerous going around the hub? said Rincewind. Used to be, said Cohen, grinning horribly. Until you left, you mean. That's right. You still got that box on legs? On and off. It hangs around, you know. Cohen chuckled. I'll get the bloody lid off that thing one day, mark my words. Ah, horses. There were five, looking depressed in a small depression. Rincewind looked back at the freed prisoners, who seemed to be milling around aimlessly. We're not taking all five horses, are we? Sure, we might need them. But one for me, one for you, what's the rest for? Lunch, dinner and breakfast? Well, it's a little unfair, isn't it? Those people look a bit bewildered. Cohen sneered the sneer of a man who has never been truly imprisoned, even when he's been locked up. I freed them, he said. First time they've ever been free. Comes as a bit of a shock, I expect. They're waiting for someone to tell them what to do next. Um, I could tell them to starve to death if you like. Um, oh, all right, you lot, fall me up he right now, too sweet, chop, chop. The small crowd hurried over to Cohen and stood expectantly behind his horse. I tell you, I don't regret it. This is the land of opportunity, said Cohen, urging the horse into a trot. The embarrassed free men jogged behind. Know what? Swords are banned. No one except the army, the nobles and the imperial guard are allowed to own weapons. Couldn't believe it. God's own truth, though. Swords are outlawed. So only outlaws have swords. And that, said Cohen, giving the landscape another glittering grin, suits me fine. But... You were in chains, Rincewind ventured. Glad you reminded me, said Cohen. Yeah, we'll find the rest of the lads, then I'd better try and find who did it and talk to them about that. The tone of his voice suggested very clearly that all they were likely to say would be, Highly enjoyable, your wife is a big hippo. Lads? No future in one man barbarianing, said Cohen. Got myself a... Uh, well, you'll see. Rincewind turned to look at the trailing party, and at the snow, and at Cohen. Er, uh, do you know where Hung Hung is? Yeah, it's the boss city, 
We're on our way, sort of. It's under siege right now. Siege? You mean like lots of armies outside, everyone inside eating rats, that sort of thing? Yeah, but this is the counterweight continent sea, so it's a polite siege. Well, I call it a siege. The old emperor's dying, so the big families are all waiting to move in. That's how it goes in these parts. There's five different top knobs, and they're all watching one another, and no one's going to be first to move. You've got to think sideways to understand anything in this place. Cohen? Yes, lad? What the hell's going on? Lord Hong was watching the tea ceremony. It took three hours, but you couldn't hurry a good cuppa. He was also playing chess against himself. It was the only way he could find an opponent of his calibre. But currently things were stalemated because both sides were adopting a defensive strategy which was admittedly brilliant. Lord Hong sometimes wished he could have an enemy as clever as himself. Or, because Lord Hong was indeed very clever, he sometimes wished for an enemy almost as clever as himself, one perhaps given to flights of strategic genius with nevertheless the occasional fatal flaw. As it was, people were so stupid. They seldom thought more than a dozen moves ahead. Assassination was meat and drink to the hung-hung court. In fact, meat and drink were often the means. It was a game that everyone played. It was just another kind of move. It was not considered good manners to assassinate the emperor, of course. The correct move was to put the emperor in a position where you had control. But moves at this level were very dangerous. Happy as the warlords were to squabble amongst themselves, they could be relied upon to unite against any who looked in danger of rising above the herd. And Lord Hong had risen like bread, by making everyone else believe that, while they were the obvious candidate for the emperorship, Lord Hong would be better than any of the alternatives. It amused him to know that they thought he was plotting for the Imperial Pearl. He glanced up from the board and caught the eye of the young woman who was busy at the tea table. She blushed and looked away. The door slid back. One of his men entered, on his knees. Yes, said Lord Hong. Er, oh, Lord. Lord Hong sighed. People seldom began like this when the news was good. What happened? he said. The one they called the Great Wizard arrived, O Lord, up in the mountains, riding on a dragon of wind. Or so they say, the messenger added quickly, aware of Lord Hong's views about superstition. Good, but I assume there is a but. Er, one of the barking dogs has been lost. The new batch that you commanded should be tested. We don't quite, uh, that is to say, we think Captain Three High Trees was ambushed, perhaps. Our information is somewhat confused. The, um, the informant says the great wizard magicked it away. The messenger crouched lower. Lord Hong merely sighed again. Magic. It had fallen out of favour in the Empire, except for the most mundane purposes. It was uncultured. It put power in the hands of people who couldn't write a decent poem to save their lives, and sometimes hadn't. He believed in coincidence a lot more than he did in magic. This is most vexing, said Lord Hong. He stood up and took his sword off the rack. It was long and curved, and had been made by the finest sword maker in the Empire, who was Lord Hong. He'd heard it took twenty years to learn the art, so he'd stretched himself a little. It had taken him three weeks. People never concentrated. That was their trouble. The messenger groveled. The officer concerned has been executed, he said. The messenger tried to scrabble through the floor and decided to let truth stand in for honesty. Yes, he piped. Lord Hong swung. There was a hiss like the fall of silk, a thump and clatter as of a coconut hitting the ground, and the tinkle of crockery. The messenger opened his eyes. He concentrated on his neck region, fearful that the slightest movement might leave him a good deal shorter. There were dire stories about Lord Hong's swords. Oh, do get up, said Lord Hong. He wiped the blade carefully and replaced the sword. Then he reached across and pulled a small black bottle from the robe of the tea girl. Uncorked, it produced a few drops that hissed when they hit the floor. Really? said Lord Hong. I wonder why people bother. He looked up. Lord Tang or Lord McSweeney has probably stolen the dog to vex me. 
Did the wizard escape? So it seems, O lord. Good. See that harm almost comes to him, and send me another tea girl, one with a head. There was this to be said about Cohen. If there was no reason for him to kill you, such as you having any a large amount of treasure or being between him and somewhere he wanted to get to, then he was good company. Rincewind had met him a few times before, generally while running away from something. Cohen didn't bother over much with questions. As far as Cohen was concerned, people appeared, people disappeared. After a five-year gap, he'd just say, Oh, it's you. He never added, And how are you? You were alive, you were upright, and beyond that he didn't give a damn. It was a lot warmer beyond the mountains. To Rincewind's relief, a spare horse didn't have to be eaten because a leopardly sort of creature dropped off a tree branch and tried to disembowel Cohen. It had a rather strong flavour. Rincewind had eaten horse. Over the years he'd nerved himself to eat anything that couldn't actually wriggle off his fork. But he was feeling shaken enough without eating something you could call Dobbin. How did they catch you? he said when they were riding again. I was busy. Cohen the Barbarian? Too busy to fight? I didn't want to upset the young lady. Couldn't help myself. Went down to a village to pick up some news. One thing led to another. Next thing, a load of soldiers were all over the place like cheap armour. And I can't fight that well with me arms shackled behind me back. Real nasty bugger in charge. Face I won't forget in hurry. Half a dozen of us were rounded up. Made to push the barking dog thing all the way out here. Then we were chained to that tree, and someone lit the bit of string, and they all legged it behind a snowdrift. Except you came along and vanished it. I didn't vanish it. Not exactly, anyway. Cohen leaned across towards Rincewind. I reckon I know what it was, he said, and sat back, looking pleased with himself. Yes? I reckon it was some kind of firework. They're very big on fireworks here. You mean the sort of things where you light the blue touch paper and stick it up your nose? Kids, only very silly wizards with bad sinus trouble do this. Sensible people go off to a roped-off enclosure where they can watch a heavily protected man in the middle distance light with the aid of a very long pole, something that goes pfft, and then they can shout hooray. They use them to drive evil spirits away. There's lots of evil spirits, see, because of all the slaughtering. Slaughtering? Rincewind had always understood that the Agatean Empire was a peaceful place. It was civilised. They invented things. In fact, he recalled, he'd been instrumental in introducing a few of their devices to Ankh Morpork. Simple, innocent things like clocks worked by demons and boxes that painted pictures and extra glass eyes you could wear over the top of your own eyes to help you see better, even if it did mean you made a spectacle of yourself. It was supposed to be dull, "'Oh, yeah, slaughtering,' said Cohen. "'Like supposing the population is being a bit behind with its taxis. "'You pick some city where people are being troublesome "'and kill everyone and set fire to it "'and pull down the walls and plough up the ashes. "'That way you get rid of the trouble "'and all the other cities are suddenly really well-behaved and polite "'and all your back taxes turn up in a big rush, "'which is handy for governments, I understand. "'Then if they ever give trouble, you just have to say... Remember Nang Nang, or whatever, and they say, Where's Nang Nang? And you say, My point exactly. Good grief. If that sort of thing was tried back home... Ah, but this place has been going a long time. People think that's how a country is supposed to run. They do what they're told. The people here are treated like slaves. Cohen scowled. Now I've got nothing against slaves, you know, as slaves... Owned a few in my time. Been a slave once or twice. But where the slaves, what do you expect to find? Rincewind thought about this. Whips, he said at last. Yeah, got it in one. Whips. There's something honest about slaves and whips. Well, they ain't got whips here. They got something worse than whips. What, said Rincewind, looking slightly panicky. You'll find out. Rincewind found himself looking around at the half-dozen other prisoners who had trailed after them and were watching in awe from a distance. He'd given them a bit of leopard, which they'd looked at initially as if it was poison, and then eaten as if it was food. "'They're still following us,' he said. "'Yeah, well, you did give them meat. 
cackled Cohen, starting to roll a post-prandial cigarette. Shouldn't have done that. Should have let them have the whiskers and the claws, and then you'd been amazed what they'd cook up. You know their big dish down on the coast? No. Pig's ear soup. Now, what's that tell you about a place, eh? Rincewind shrugged. Very provident people? Some other bugger pinches the pig. He turned in the saddle. The group of ex-prisoners shrank back. Now, see here, he said. I told you, you're free. Understand? One of the braver men spoke up. Yes, master. I ain't your master. You're free. You can go whenever you like. Excepting if you follow me, I'll kill the lot of you. And now, go away. Where, master? Anywhere. Somewhere not here. The men gave one another some worried looks, and then the whole group, as one man, turned and trotted away along the path. Probably go straight back to their village, he said, rolling his eyes. Worse than whips, I tell you. He waved a scrawny hand at the landscape as they rode on. Strange bloody country, he said. Did you know there's a wall all round the empire? That's to keep the barbarian invaders out. Oh, yes, very defensive, said Cohen sarcastically. Like, oh my goodness, there's a twenty-foot wall, dear me, I suppose we'd just better ride off back over a thousand miles of steppe and not, e.g., take a look at the ladder possibilities inherent in that pine wood over there. No, it's to keep people in. And rules? They've got rules for everything. No one even goes to the privy without a piece of paper. Well... As a matter of fact, I myself... A piece of paper saying they can go is what I meant. Can't leave your village without a chit. Can't get married without a chit. Can't even have a sh... Oh, here we are. Yes, indeed, said Rincewind. Cohen glared at him. How did you know? he demanded. Rincewind tried to think. It had been a long day. In fact, it had, because of the thalmic equivalent of jet lag been several hours longer than most other days he'd experienced, and had contained two lunchtimes, neither of which had contained anything worth eating. Uh, I thought you were making a general philosophical point, he hazarded, like, um, we'd better make the best of it. I meant we're at my hideout, said Cohen. Rincewind stared around them. There were scrubby bushes, a few rocks, and a sheer cliff face. I can't see anything, he said. Yep. That's how you can tell it's mine. The art of war was the ultimate basis of diplomacy in the Empire. Clearly, war had to exist. It was a cornerstone of the processes of government. It was the way the Empire got its leaders. The competitive examination system was how it got its bureaucratic and public officials, and warfare was for its leaders, perhaps, only a different kind of competitive examination. Admittedly, if you lost, you probably weren't allowed to resit next year. But there had to be rules. Otherwise, it was just a barbaric scuffle. So, hundreds of years ago, the art of war had been formulated. It was a book of rules. Some were very specific. There was to be no fighting within the Forbidden City. The person of the Emperor was sacrosanct. And some were more general guidelines for the good and civilised conduct of warfare. There were the rules of position, of tactics, of the enforcement of discipline, of the correct organisation of supply lines. The art laid down the optimum course to take in every conceivable eventuality. It meant that warfare in the Empire had become far more sensible and generally consisted of short periods of activity followed by long periods of people trying to find things in the index. No one remembered the author... Some said it was one Tzu Sung. Some claimed it was three Sun Sung. Possibly it was even some unsung genius who had penned, or rather painted, the very first principle, Know the enemy and know yourself. Lord Hong felt that he knew himself very well, and seldom had trouble knowing his enemies, and he made a point of keeping his enemies alive and healthy. Take the Lords Sung, Fang, Tang and McSweeney. He cherished them. He cherished their... Adequacy. They had adequate military brains, which was to say that they had memorised the five rules and nine principles of the art of war. They wrote adequate poetry, and were cunning enough to counter such coups as were attempted in their own ranks. They occasionally sent against him assassins who were sufficiently competent to keep Lord Hong interested and observant and entertained. He even admired their adequate treachery, 
No one could fail to realise that Lord Hong would be the next emperor, but when it came to it, they would nevertheless contest the throne. At least officially. In fact, each warlord had privately pledged his personal support to Lord Hong, being adequately bright to know what was likely to happen if he didn't. There would still have to be a battle, of course, for custom's sake, but Lord Hong had a place in his heart for any leader who would sell his own men. Know your enemy. Lord Hong had decided to find a worthwhile one, so Lord Hong had seen to it that he got books and news from Ankh Morpork. There were ways. He had his spies. At the moment, Ankh Morpork didn't know it was the enemy, and that was the best kind of enemy to have. And he had been amazed and then intrigued and finally lost in admiration for what he saw. I should have been born there, he thought, as he watched the other members of the Serene Council. Oh, for a game of chess with someone like Lord Vetinari. No doubt he would carefully watch the board for three hours before he even made his first move. End of CD 2